This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. We have such a remarkable show today. Dreamland has gone to many, many places. It has gone to Gobekli Tepe. It has gone to various, to Saxahuaman, to various different places, to the mounds in the central United States, all over the place, to the Templar remains on uh, 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 Newfoundland, to Oak Island. We've been all over the world. And we've been to Egypt quite a few times, but not like this. Not like this. We're going to be talking to the creator of one of the single most extraordinary books about Egypt I have ever seen in a life that when I was 10 years old, I was taken to the bookstore by my mother and said, you can buy anything you want. And I bought two books on ancient Egypt, which I still possess, but they don't equal the extraordinary beauty, even magnificence of this book. And why are we getting into it? Well, we're getting specifically into the Temple of Dendera, and I want to welcome the author, Jose Barrera, to Dreamland for the first time. Jose, I'm so glad you were willing to come on this show and share some of your discoveries with us. Well, Whitley, thank you for having me. I, I, the honor is all mine and the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Well, first of all, folks, Dendera Temple of Time is brain-bending. Uh, it is absolutely unbelievable that anyone could do this. And I want to uh, start out by asking you what drew you to the Temple of Hathor at Dendera in the first place? Uh, I think that that's an interesting question. We're starting with an interesting question. Uh, first chance, I was never expecting to end up in Egypt, but the source of the book is the magnificence of the temple. So once you have behold that place, you cannot forget it and you cannot get it out of your head. And it became my obsession. And I wanted to know what it all meant, this temple. And I found that there is no easy accessible documentation about it, especially in English. So the book that I created is the book that I wanted to find to describe what I saw there. And since it didn't exist, I was like, this is something that begs to be created. And that's the reason why I did that. But it is, at the end, is the energy of the temple, the, the sheer beauty and, and magnificence of the temple that took me there. Usually, folks, we just... Uh show the image of the book at the as you know but i'm going to hold the book up now for just a moment and open it and just to take a look at what we've got here this is absolutely incredible look at this thing look at this beautiful beautiful book oh of course i didn't get it onto the right pages this is this is not a good idea. 
This is the sort of thing you see in it. It's full of imagery like that. And beautifully, beautifully photographed. And what we're going to do now is we're going to find out from Jose what the secrets of this temple are, because they're very extraordinary. This is a, an important place to this day. It's important to anyone engaged in a serious inner search. Jose, let's tell us a little bit about the history of the temple first. Okay, so this temple is a recent temple by relative standards of Egypt. So it was created at the end of, at the, at the sunset of the Egyptian civilization, right when the Romans were entering into Egypt and were conquering Egypt. So it's a very late temple. And it, that, that has a bunch of advantages and nice things. And is that, in a way, this temple summarizes the knowledge that the Egyptians have in uh, different aspects, in particular in astronomy, because this ceiling that the book is about, so basically the book is about a ceiling in this temple that is a magnificent ceiling covered with astronomical images. And what is nice that this temple is a late temple from the time of Cleopatra, actually. She was one of the builders of the temple, or not, not herself. She, she, she sponsored the building of this temple. Oh, well, we understand that, yeah. <laughs> and basically what, what is interesting about this temple, as, as I was mentioning, is that because it is a late temple, then you have a compendium of all the knowledge of astronomy that the Egyptians have in this ceiling. And then the other thing that it has is that it's, it's as if it was new, as if, if it was built yesterday. So uh, the Ministry of Antiquities of Egypt uh, sponsored the cleaning of the ceiling like a couple, like last decade. So the colors are pristine and, and the whole temple is in perfect condition, just like the day it was built, uh, except a couple of uh, iconoclasms that it has inside and the facings uh, by Coptic Christians in, in the future and the passage of time. But in general, the, the temple is in perfect shape. So it's not that other ancient ruins where you go and you have a couple of columns standing and things like that. No, these, the, the whole housing of the temple, the, the roofs, the whole thing is, is in perfect shape. And it's, it's a magnificent, beautiful work of architecture and art inside. Mm, so, yeah, it is a late temple uh, from the end of the Ptolemaic period, and it was finished by the guys who became the emperor, the, the pharaohs, the late pharaohs, who were basically the emperors of, of Rome, Roman emperors. So the temple, as we know it today, was finished in the first century uh, uh, after Christ, basically. Um, I think what we need to do here is to first talk about Hathor and who Hathor was, because what we need, what I want to do is to try to get an idea of what this temple tells us, what it, it says, and why it is 
so, so important, certainly in terms of the history of our understanding of the Egyptian religion. It's vitally important, but it is important on, a, on deeper levels as well. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Hathor? Oh, wait, wait, before you go on, the perfect moment has arrived, folks. Uh, we're going to uh, take a break. And you can visit Jose at josebarrera.com, josebarrera.com. And I'll put that in the crawl in a few minutes. It's Jose Maria Barrera. I'm sorry, Jose Maria Barrera dot com. Yeah, J O S A M A R I A B A R R A. I think I'll put it in the crawl. <laughs> I told you it was a, a mouthful, right? <laughs> right, exactly. But you can visit him there and get a, a, a sense of the flavor of this book. And why do I think books like this are so important? Why have I had my own? Egypt books with me all of my life because this is alive. This is something alive that it's not dead. Uh, it, it's not some old religion. There's a vivid reality here. And that's why I want to talk about Hathor when we get back. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? in the stars or is it also somewhere else is it in us in you unknown country join us today go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us join the questions join the search Join the adventure. UnknownCountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. I'd like to tell you a wonderful story. It's a story about my wife, Anne. She passed on in 2015, an hour after she died. She began to come back. Now she's with us, and you can learn more about this and what it means to you and what it can mean to you so much more than you may think. Get the afterlife revolution. Get it today. You can read it on Kindle as a book. You can listen to me reading it as an audio book. It's a beautiful journey into a new way of understanding death and life. And yes, afterlife. There's a reason that Dr. Gary Schwartz, one of the great afterlife investigators in the world, says it's among the most convincing cases he has ever encountered. Afterlife revolution. Don't miss it. We're talking to Jose Barrera, his new book, Dendera, The Temple of Time. And we're going to be finding out why it's called The Temple of Time, why he calls it that. But first, let's talk about the goddess to whom it is dedicated. Tell us a little bit about Hathor and her history and why such an extraordinary 
temple would be built honoring her. Okay, so actually the the place where the, the temple is located is called Dendera, and the goddess of the temple is the goddess Hathor, as you mentioned. The goddess Hathor is a millenary goddess. It's one of the most ancient goddesses of ancient of deities of ancient Egypt. She comes from pre-dynastic times, and initially she was worshipped as a cow. And as time went by, more attributes were attributed to the goddess. And in the late period when this temple is from, the distinction between Hathor and Isis is flimsy. Is they're becoming the same deity at the end of the of the of their Roman period, right? So this goddess is the goddess mostly and, and, and chiefly of fertility and life and life giving. So that I would say is that the main factor of, of the goddess Hathor is that she's the goddess of life, of fertility. And along those things came other things that are related, and we can see why they're related. She was a goddess of sex, the goddess of inheritation, the goddess of love, the goddess of music and festivity. And she was also a punisher. So in some cases, she became a lioness, and then she almost destroyed humanity in an act of rage. So all these gods, all these ancient deities, what is interesting about them, if you think about Zeus or in the case, in the case of, of Greek gods, is that these gods are dualistic. They're not only good or evil, but they have attributes on both sides. And what is interesting is that one thing that I learned about these gods of antiquity, and, and I think this pertains to what you were saying, that they're still alive today. It's not that Zeus disappeared with, with the Greeks or the Romans, or that Hathor disappeared at the, at the sunset of, of the Egyptian civilization. It's that these gods, in reality, what they represent is forces of nature and of the psyche. So those things, and that's precisely what they're immortal, is because our psyche and who we are and the forces that, that mold us and, and that tell who we are, they haven't changed in millennia and they probably will be the same in the next millions of years. So, so those things that are... The, the, the forces that shape our nature are embodied in these gods and in these deities. So these anthropomorphical visions of these forces is what brings these gods. But in reality, what they're talking to us is not about the, the bodies with the head of a cow or a, or a, a lion or whatever it is. What they represent, if you have a head of a lion, is you're fearless, right? And, and his power. Yes. And so, so what they are is anthropomorphizations of attributes embodied in these characters 
So you can create stories and myths about them, but the reality is that they are real because they represent these forces. They're symbols for forces and attributes of fundamental of the fundamental nature of who we are and where we are, right? That is the best explanation of the ancient gods that I've heard because time after time, I hear people who don't go deep enough. They think the ancients thought of their gods as actual physical beings. And of course, this isn't true. This is what you're describing is the truth. This is how these gods were perceived. They were <clears throat> forces of the of the spirit, of the mind, of the heart, and of nature personified, basically. Correct. And 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 therefore, when you study the the wisdom of the ancient gods and their powers, you're studying your own inner life and the life of nature. And this is the power of these temples. Knowing this and understanding this, you go into a place like the, the Temple of Hathor, and it's transformative. Um, I, now, I would agree, sorry, I would agree with you on almost everything that you said, except one thing. And is, I think analog, like, it's very analog to what happens today, like in Christianity, say, I think there are people who take Christianity at face value and literally. And I would imagine in the past, like the peasants and the people who live in like the working class of, of, of the empires, they truly believed in the characters, in the, in the effigies that were put there at face value. Just like people today, they pray to the images of saints and, and animals and whatever it is, right? And they create little altars. And I think that's one level of understanding, right? One very esoteric, exoteric level of understanding of, of, of religion. And I think that happens today, right? Like with, with people who believe, for example, in Christianity, literally, and they believe that there was a talking snake and we are 4,000 years old and so on, because they take these stories literally. But there is another way to read and interpret yes. these stories, which is what we were talking about. And I think it's, it's, it's deeper. It's a deeper understanding and way is a richer understanding of reality, just like the, the face value of the myth. Well, yeah, it's a debased uh, way of looking at it when people personify it like that. In other words, they, they, they literalize the stories and of course that that was done routinely in the in the in ancient times and uh, uh, even but, but not by the people who were really were seriously pursuing this uh the this effort and the, the inner journey that the gods represented in in fact later on in the roman empire when the plague after plague came to the empire and the barbarian incursions started and the empire began to be shaken to its core, people turned on the gods as if they were protective entities. And that's why we see so many statues uh, smashed with their arms gone and their heads, their faces smashed off or their heads smashed off. 
because people were going around and literally smashing them on the theory that if they smashed them, they would kill the gods that were oppressing them. And so it was a decline. There was a decline, but this, this is a, this, this temple is not from that era. This temple is, it's almost as if, is it the last great temple that was created by the Egyptians themselves? Probably there, there in this, this period, in the Ptolemaic period, there was a, big or a great wave of building temples across Egypt. So I would say a lot of the temples, like you look at the temple of Edfu or the temple of Esna, uh, their temples are probably contemporary to, to, to the temple of Hathor at Dendera. Mm. So it, it came by, by waves, right? When, when there was opulence, or when they wanted to make a political statement, they they constructed this infrastructure and all these temples in the in the uh, across time, right? So so you have different periods of time where depending on on the pharaoh, what you have is deep like heavy construction of infrastructure, just like happens with governments, right? Like there are some governments that decide to invest on let's create highways and airports and things like that. Uh, so I think it is kind of similar, and these temples were political institutions. Uh, let's remind the, the audience: they were not only religious, but they were they were political, right? Like they were the the, the centers of, of of power and and administration of, of the of the of these different uh, of the of the Egyptian empire was basically centralizing in these temples. So they were not only places of, of worship. But they were they, they had also administrative functions for the empire, basically, for this theocracy. So the in a sense, the theocracy was trying to perhaps preserve itself in the sense of they must have seen they had just had the years of uh, they'd been conquered by Alexander the Great, and it, the country was now being run by the Greeks. And now the Romans, and they were, I think, perhaps trying to preserve their understanding and their civilization with these extraordinary late temples, especially Absolutely. this one. Absolutely, in the in the walls of the temples and like on the surfaces of the temples, they encode encoded a lot of information that was never encoded before on any writing put down to writing. So there's. Yeah, and I think I mentioned this in the book at some point, that is that perhaps the priests of these temples start to see around and sense the decline of the culture and and their language is, is dying because Greek is becoming like the, the main language in, in there. Yes. And it, it literally died for 2,000 years. We, humanity forgot how to read hieroglyphs. So... So they were right in the case that they were writing something on the on the walls. What, what they didn't count with was that we would forget how to read that, and just by a happenstance and and by a, an act of luck, we are today able to kind of read what is on the walls because of the discovery of the Rosetta Stone. Because if it wasn't because of those stellas, which are basically plagues that. Are written in, in in that have some writings. 
in the case of the Rosetta Stone, what happened is that it was uh, written on the top on, on, on hieroglyphs and at the bottom on ancient Greek. If we didn't have that, that, that link between a language that we know today, that is ancient Greek, and uh, ancient Egyptian in hieroglyphs, today we wouldn't be able to read anything on these walls. So it is literally a miracle and, and uh, an act of luck that they unearthed this rock with the with the which is the Rosetta Stone because otherwise we wouldn't know what 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 was on the walls and that would be lost forever basically. So they were they were engaged in a it really what amounts to a life or death struggle, and they built this in part. Uh, to uh to 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 preserve and and in a sense to overwhelm people with the power of the ideas and let's talk now a little bit about those ideas because this is a temple that has got an a lot of astrological significance um can you be, explain more about the astronomical functions of the temple. Correct. So, yeah, and, and, and I heard that you mentioned astrological first and then astronomical, and I think it's correct because this distinction, this modern distinction between astronomy and astrology is a modern distinction, and that didn't exist in the past. So, let me, let me draw a picture for you that I think is super interesting, and is imagine these temples, as you said, these magnificent, very imposing structures, and they're in the middle of, of a field, and what you have is these massive columns and these massive plays covered with symbols around, and you are a peasant, right? You, you work on the fields, and you walk by every day to around these temples, these temples didn't have access. It's not like our modern churches where people go to worship and you can go into the temple. These ancient temples were reserved for the priestly class and the pharaoh. So not everyone had access to the inner parts of the temple. People could go outside and they had certain chapels where people could go and worship, but the, the, the real temple was reserved for the priests because it was supposed to be the house of the god and the god was support the deity was supposed to inhabit these temples so imagine these temples covered with symbols most of the people are illiterate they don't know how to read <clears throat> and they see all these priests in fancy clothes right dressing pristine white and what these priests do is that they go to the temples and they look at the, the sky and they look at the gods in the sky and imagine these walls are covered with images of the gods, very imposing and gigantic and so on. And these priests get messages from the sky and then they can predict the future and then they can foretell what's going to happen in the future. And that's the view from the point of view of 
a peasant that is like a, a worker that has nothing to do with the priestly class. What they see is that there are these people, the priests, who can talk to, communicate with the beings in the sky, and they send them messages on how to act, and they can predict what happens in the future. Uh, now, let's look, look at that from the point of view of the priests. So what the priests are in reality are in or one of their functions is they're astronomers. So they're looking at the stars because the stars and, and the planets and, and the celestial bodies have one attribute that is incredibly important and is that their movements are cyclical. So you can use the stars as a gigantic clock where you have this watch in the sky, which is the movement of the stars across the year. And based on the position of the stars during the year, I know where in the year I am. And in the case of Egypt, the most important event in the case of Egypt was the flooding of the Nile River. Because think about this, Egypt is a desert with a miracle in, that crosses, goes across Egypt, that is the Nile that creates an oasis that is a thousand miles long with one of the most fertile soils in the whole planet. But this fertility depends on the flooding of the Nile. And think about the, the, what happens during the flood is that the water goes out on the banks of the, of the river. And then when the water recesses, then you created the most fertile land in, in, in the, the planet where you can plant and harvest and so on. And then as it dries out, the, 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 the land starts to dry. And then you start to wait and hope for the next flooding on the next cycle. And this happens to me once a year because the waters from Ethiopia, from the torrential rains in Ethiopia that happened in April then or in, in March, then they calm down the Nile, and that's what creates all this cycle of fertility. So from the point of view of the priests, what they're doing is they're using the sky and the patterns in the sky to be able to foretell the future, namely, when is that we're going to have different events, like in the case of the Egyptians, it is the flooding of the Nile, and based on that, then they can foretell, oh, so we have to start preparing for planting this month. We have to start preparing for harvesting this time and so on. So what they're doing is they're observing at the stars, they're observing the stars and using those as markers to regiment the civil activity and the, and the, the activity of the people, the community around the cycles of nature. So from the point of view of the people who work on the fields, this is a supernatural act of these priests that are magicians and astrologers and are looking at the stars and foretelling the future and they can predict when things are gonna happen. And from the point of view of the of the of the priests, what they're doing is they're scientists observing the sky and taking measurements and creating calendars so they can predict when the different natural events that are relevant for the good, well-functioning of society are going to happen. 
So I think that completes the, the, the picture on how how things are seen from one side and the other, basically. You uh, Let's take another break. Uh, we'll be right back with Jose Barrera. Who are they? Why are they here? What do they want with us? Why is it all so secret? All of these questions are explored in my new book, Them, in an entirely new way. What do Close Encounter reports tell us about what the visitors want with us? What is the military's experience? And can our memories be trusted? Can anything be trusted? Them answers all of these questions in a totally new way. It's available in hardcover, softcover, as a Kindle, and as an audiobook, read by me. Get them today, and you can get it from the unknowncountry.com store, signed by me. Unknowncountry.com subscribers have access to a vast treasury of information. Listen to what Dr. Robert Schock said. He's an expert on the past, and for that reason, he also knows a great deal about the future. We are re-entering, as you say, a debris field, and when you have a debris field like this, it enters the solar system, it energizes the solar system as you have things um, going into the sun, even clouds of dust particles, for instance, it will energize the sun, it will destabilize the sun. This is what we saw at the end of the last ice age in approximate terms about 13,000 years ago. And just in the past few days, more enormous meteors have been sighted, and this goes on continuously, more and more every year. We live in a time of great change in a world that doesn't like to look at things as they are. UnknownCountry.com offers extraordinary information, a vast archive that you cannot find anywhere else. Subscribe today. Help keep this website going because without you, there is and can be no us. Go to UnknownCountry.com. Right now, click on the subscribe tab. Get started. We're talking to Jose Maria Barrera, his website, josemariabarrera.com, about his extraordinary new book about Dendera, the, the temple there. And uh, it is a remarkable book and a remarkable journey. One of the things that that the temple does is uh, uh, it 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 seems to be attempting to make a a kind of a structure. We talked about their relationship with the future. And, of course, they were trying to predict the Nile flood and uh, all sorts of events, and they had the astronomical knowledge to do just that. And these temples were reflecting that. But <clears throat> what about 
we've talked a little bit about the historical context in of the temple, but <clears throat> what about its mythological context? Uh, we've talked briefly about Hathor and Isis kind of melding together as the same deity in later Egypt. But where did Hathor come from? And what is her mythological significance? Okay, so as I mentioned before, Hathor is a very ancient goddess. Yes. And she... So... Because she has, like, and, and, and in this case, right, we're talking about probably 6,000-year-old deity. Like, it is it, one of the long, longest-living deities in, in humanity, right? Uh, 6,000 years, like a long time, and she's pretty dynastic. So she appears in different myths, and she she serves as different roles, or she... she in, in in mythology. So on one side, she, as, as I mentioned before, she's the guardian of justice and she's one of the eyes of Ra. And, and she's the scorching sun. On the other side, she's love and she's fertility. Mm. She's also music. And when you start to think about all these things, what they have in common is that she is the goddess of rhythm, like namely music, literally rhythm, but not only that, the rhythm of fertility. So if you think about the menstrual cycle, right? And by the, by the way, month and, and menstrual, menstrual comes from month, which means to measure and if you think about, and, and this is incredible, the cycles of the moon, the phases of the moon are synchronized with the timing of fertility of the human race. Like it is incredible that, that in a way the moon tells the men's or, or, or is, is in the mental cycle, right? So, so the stars are aligned with the fertility of humanity in that way, literally, and, and it is fascinating. And, and not only that cycle, but when you start to think about the influences of the stars, astrology, literally, on humans, think about what is the influence of the sun on people? And it's unbelievable. The cycle of the sun, which is what we call basically the, 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 the spinning of earth, which is what we call night and day, and it's 24 hours, that's related to our cycles of dreaming and being awake. So just... Think about this for a, for a second. It's, it's, it's incredible. Is that when the sun goes away and there is night, we humans get sleepy and we go to sleep and we dream and we hallucinate or we go to these dreamly realms and we live these fantastic stories for eight hours a day and then we wake up 
in our collective reality again every day when the light comes back out of the sun and we live our daily lives and we have this cycle and it's a periodic cycle that happens every 24 hours we have a we die and resurrect every 24 every every 12 hours right right and and it's fascinating because this is tied to the movements of the planets relative to earth well you know there's a fascinating book out that has a a very modern take on this it's called universe within and it is about the apparent fact that the human brain models the universe and in other words it it is literally as above so below mm-hmm. the brain the structures of the brain reflect the structures of the universe and so it when i read that book and i'm hoping to interview the author i thought to myself it seems to me that the ancient world somehow was aware of this not necessarily uh scientifically and verbally but certainly intuitively and that said uh i would like to move into uh the dendera circular zodiac that's in the louvre that you mentioned in the book mm-hmm. and and tell us about that zodiac because i think that if i mean we've always assumed that astrology um, not me but many people that astrology is just nonsense but in view of the fact that there may be some kind of a deep connection between the way the brain works and the way the universe works now i'm not so sure mm-hmm. so uh tell us about the dendera circular zodiac okay uh, with with a preface about what you said and is that the problem with all this esoteric uh, knowledge is that there are always two sides of it. There is a deep truth on it. And there are all these charlatans that, that profit from all this. So, so like weaving out what is true and what is not in all these topics is really hard because there are many charlatans and, and many gullible people but there is a kernel of truth, as you mentioned, on all these things. Yes, exactly. Uh, now, the circular zodiac, as it is known, is... So think about this. So at the beginning of the 19th century, actually the, the last year of the, of the 18th century, at the turn of the 19th century, Napoleon decided to invade Egypt. And it was mostly and mainly for strategic reasons because what he wanted to do was he wanted to cut the access to india for the for the british empire and that was a part of that and the other one is he wanted to make egypt the breadbasket of the french empire Mm, as part of this he got all these civilians who were architects and engineers and artists and all these what they were called the savants were 160 of them to go in this military campaign uh, along with 35,000 soldiers and they went to Egypt when they conquered Egypt. So 
as we were saying before, when they arrive to Egypt, they start to see all these structures that are magnificent, like, like the pyramids and all these temples and all these things that are grandiose and abandoned and covered in sand. And they forgot how to read what it says on the walls. So, so when they come here, they look at this and it's like, imagine you land on Mars and you find all these temples in Mars and they're covered with this alien script that you have no idea what it is. But it's obviously from an advanced civilization because the structures themselves are incredibly advanced and harmonious and beautiful and magnificent. And you look at the walls and they're covered with gobbledygook because you cannot read it because it's an alien script. And what happens in this temple and is the first thing that happened in, in whole Egypt is that these intellectuals who are walking around this structure, they come to Dendera and they look at the ceiling and they see for the first time something that is that they know and is the signs of the Zodiac because the signs of the Zodiac are Babylonic and they're Greek. So there is all this tradition of the Zodiac that they didn't die with Egypt and so on, but continued because of astrology and, and the constellations. So all of a the sudden, they see on this temple something that they can relate, relate to. And they go upstairs in one little chapel that is a chapel dedicated to the uh, god Osiris. And on the ceiling of that chapel, they find this astronomical scene that contains the stars of the zodiac. And they are like, oh, my God. All of the sudden, we found something that we have a chance to understand because there is something that we know in it that is the stars of the zodiac, the constellations of the zodiac. So they look at it, and more than anything, what they say is, based on the position of the constellations and the different relative stars on this ceiling, we can date when this chapel was made because they had no idea. They, they went there. And they have no idea what is the origin of the of the Egyptian uh, civilization. They have certain anecdotes and stories told by uh, Greek explorers, right? From people who visited at the time of, of the Ptolemaic time uh, the temples, and they wrote about it. But that's the last thing that they know about this. They have no idea when it came, when it started, and so on. So based on this ceiling, they're like, oh, my God, we can date when this temple is from. So long story short, 20 years go by in 1820. Uh, one guy goes there with gunpowder and takes down the, the, this, this, the, the roof of this chapel, which is called the, the Circular Zodiac, which is what would be the size of that? That's probably like, say... Mm, 10 feet, probably a radio a diameter or something like that. Like, and and they move this rock, they put it on a on a on a boat and they move it up the Nile or down the Nile to, to the Mediterranean, and then they brought it to to France, and today that circle of zodiac is at the Louvre. And at they the put Louvre. Last, yeah, the Louvre Museum. Yeah. 
and, and, and they put a plaster copy on on where they left the hole on the on the roof of this chapel, basically. You know, this we nowadays we 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 frown on this as looting. Uh, you know, there's the Elgin marbles are in in uh, uh, England and the circular zodiacs at the Louvre and the Western world is full of artifacts from the old times and the Eastern world that have been taken. And uh, I'm not sure if uh, exactly, I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of that, but that's a, a, a factor, certainly. This is a temple about time and Unfortunately, free dreamlanders, we've run out of time on your end of the thing. And so uh, we're going to say goodbye to you now. And subscribers, we're going to keep on uh, digging a little deeper into the significance of the zodiac symbols and how they relate to the ancient Egyptian understanding of astronomy. Thank you, free dreamlanders, very much for being with us. And remember Jose's website jose maria barrera.com the book is dendera temple of time magnificent transformative experience yeah he's he's excited about it okay you've been listening to dreamland be sure to tune in again next week dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.